From the hallowed hallways of Shed High School, from WSHDLP Eastport, this is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane from Eastport, Maine. Stay tuned for historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world. people go when they die? Well, the ancient Greeks believed you were ferried across a river to the Elysian Fields, their version of heaven, consisting of green fields, valleys, and mountains, where everyone was peaceful and contented. The Vikings believed in Valhalla, which was reserved for warriors who died in battle. Some cultures believe Earth is just a giant university and that heaven is our real home. So let's all pile into our round-the-world interdimensional spaceship on a fact-finding mission to see what's shaken in the heavenly realm. Then later we'll read listener letters about your own brushes with death. Cling tenaciously to your specially issued round-the-world passports that will allow you to not only visit some of the abodes of the afterlife, but come back to the WSHD studios intact. Heaven, heaven, all aboard for heaven, all aboard for home sweet home. Heaven, heaven, train on track 11, come on you golden stone, step on it, Casey Jones, sugar is sweet, but mother's sweeter. Right at the gate, you're gonna meet her, like me, Peter, heaven, heaven, all aboard for heaven, all aboard for home, sweet home.
two versions of All Aboard for Heaven. That was the Knickerbockers, who instrumentally elaborated on the Meyer Davis Orchestra, both those versions from 1925. We're on a fact-finding mission, exploring various ideations of the afterlife. According to the Pew Research Center, seven in ten Americans believe a person will be rewarded for leading a good life by going to heaven. Six in ten believe if you're bad and not sorry for it, you'll go to the other place. We all like to think that we'll go straight to heaven. But is heaven a physical place or a state of mind? Many believe heaven is the home we return to, where we are reunited with our loved ones. Here is Carl Fenton and his orchestra to elaborate on this concept.
roundabout way to heaven, heaven. I mean a roundabout way back home. I'm leaving roundabout half past seven, seven. Upon the happiest trip I've known. Believe me, I'll just stop off to get that sweetie of mine. I'm gonna bring her to an angel divine who's waiting. I found a roundabout way to heaven, heaven. I mean a roundabout way back home. The Apana Troubadours, and they were warmed up by Carl Fenton and his orchestra, both of them claiming they found a 1926 roundabout way to heaven, where they went home and reunited with their loved ones. Another stop on our visits to the heavenly realms. Some traditions believe that heaven is made up of seven different levels. Over the eons, the soul evolves to reach more and more refined realms. Stuart Allen claims that he has achieved this most exalted domain. Here he is assisted by Richard Himber in his Ritz-Carlton Orchestra. Here is Seventh Heaven. Heaven's gates swing wide 
You can't hide what I see inside Your love comes smiling through I'm in seventh heaven with you
highest level of paradise, seventh heaven, realized by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra in 1929. I'm in the seventh heaven. And while they were there, they probably ran into Stuart Allen with Richard Himber and his Ritz-Carlton Orchestra, who gave us Seventh Heaven from 1937. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World with Cracklin' Jane. Today we are visiting the afterlife, using our special issue passports that allow us to return unscathed. We made it all the way up to the most exalted Seventh Heaven, And before that, we visited the paradise of the heavenly home where one is reunited with dear ones. Some feel that heaven and hell are mind states experienced here on earth. Sagar Ellis takes this view in his 1927, My Blue Heaven. Thank you. 
Jimmy Lunsford and his orchestra just played their 1936 version of My Blue Heaven. This was preceded by Sagar Ellis from 1927. Some folk traditions have it that heaven is an actual physical place up in the sky somewhere. Thus, the pearly gates is perched on banks of fluffy clouds. Here is Bar Harbor Society Orchestra telling us that stars are the windows of heaven.
Siolito Lindo, Beautiful Heaven, that 1941 version sung by Deanna Durbin with Victor Young and his orchestra. Before that, the Bar Harbor Society Orchestra explained that stars are the windows of heaven, underscoring that some people think heaven is an actual physical place up in the sky. Today we're broadcasting from heaven, and fortunately we have passports that will allow us to return to earth, none the worse for wear. Earlier, we did put out a request to hear from anyone who had had what they call a near-death experience, where you are actually clinically dead, and come back to tell what it was like on the other side. We didn't hear from that many people, probably because not that many of us have actually died and come back, and only about 10% of those death survivors remember the experience later. But we did find this epistle in the Round the World mailbag. Dear Cracklin Jane, I'm one of those people who thinks that when you die, that's all she wrote. You don't go anywhere, you're just gone. However, a few years back, my wife's old grandma was in a car accident and was dead for a short period at the scene. The paramedics did the CPR stuff and got her heart going again. When she awoke, boy was she mad as a hornet at being brought back. She said it was so nice warm and bright and happy where she was. After that, she had no fear of death. In fact, I think she looked forward to it. Signed, Grandson-in-Law. Well, your grandma is not the only one who thinks heaven is cozy and happy. 
Let's find out what heaven means to Ruth Edding in 1932. Going home at night to a cottage white Sheltered by a shady tree Speaking of a place called heaven That's what heaven means to me Always finding there Those who really care Faces that I love to see Round the fireside Thank you. 
That's what I call heaven. We just heard Rex Gordon's Aces from 1929. This was preceded by Ruth Edding in 1932 with That's What Heaven Means to Me. Around the World is broadcasting from the afterlife this hour. And now we're just reading through a few listener letters about their experiences with near death. Let's see what this one has to say. Dear Cracklin' Jane, I had a heart attack a few years back and must have bit the big one because while I was supposedly unconscious, I looked in the backyard and there were two five-foot-tall blackbirds sitting on the fence waiting for me. They told me I had completed all my assignments and they were there to carry me to where I would be going next. They told me I could stay on earth a little longer if I wanted extra credit, and I thought about it, and I told them to come back in a few years. I was then revived by the EMTs. Signed, could probably go any day at this point. Dear Could, what you saw is referred to as psychopomps, which are creatures whose responsibility is to escort newly deceased souls from earth to the afterlife. Thanks for sharing this interesting incident, and enjoy your victory lap here on Earth. You're listening to WSHDLP Esport. This is Round the World Broadcasting from the Afterlife. We're currently in heaven. We'll hear two more songs about paradise before heading down to the other place. Here's the 1929 Colonial Club Orchestra. This is heaven.
when I met you and a look in your eyes, I found the true heaven. You are like a rainbow way up in the skies, round my true heaven. All through the years, years that were tears, I hope that someday, someway, all of my dreams would come true. Then I found you and I knew through heaven with heavenly you. Crappy Lambert with the Sam Landon Orchestra with True Heaven. This was led in by the Colonial Club Orchestra, This is Heaven, both from 1929. Right, if we don't hurry up and visit hell and purgatory, we're going to run out of time. So here is a listener letter about a hellish ordeal. Dear Cracklin Jane, I had an unusual experience when I tried to commit suicide. After I passed out, I was surrounded by a a whole slew of mean guys who were picking and grabbing at me. They were rifling through my pockets and pulling my hair, and I couldn't defend myself. It was a complete nightmare. A voice told me I had two choices. I could stay there and get picked at forever, or I could go back and become a public speaker. I didn't know which would be worse but I decided to go back. At first, every time I gave a public speech, I got so nervous I wanted to toss my cookies. But afterwards, I got a lot of positive response from people telling me how my talk affected their personal views on things. And eventually, speaking in public was no big deal. Thanks for letting me share my experience. Professional Order Dear Professional, This seems to underscore how hell can be just a state of mind because when you faced your fear of public speaking, it basically turned the hell of stage fright into the paradise of a positive resulting experience. Let's listen to Teddy Simmons tell about the 1937 hell in her heart with the help of Jimmy Noon and his orchestra. Thank you. 
got something to prove it's true. You've been running around, it's the talk of the town. But you can't pull the wool over my eyes. You don't appreciate a thing that I do. You're a cheater, you know it's true. Oh, honey, you took my money. I love you, I love you, I do But I've got hell in my heart for you Teddy Simmons with Jimmy Noon and his 1937 orchestra. That was Hell in My Heart. Let's not spend any more time in hell than absolutely necessary. So we'll take this elevator up to purgatory. And speaking of limbo, here is Lord Tickler and the Jamaican Calypsonians with the song of that name. Oh, she don't know she's one of three. 
The Limbo from 1956. That was Lord Tickler and the Jamaican Calypsonians. And finally, not everyone believes in an afterlife. Some hunter-gatherer societies in Africa, such as the Hazda, have no particular belief in an afterlife. The death of an individual is a straightforward end to their existence. So to the question, where do we go when we die? The answer is nowhere. Here is Charlie Barnett and his orchestra playing Nowhere in 1940. Thank you. 
Charlie Barnett and his orchestra, Nowhere, from 1940. This concludes the musical portion of Round the World today. We managed to get safely back to the WSHD studios as hale and hearty as ever. We went on a fact-finding mission to get some insight into where people go when they die. Our special passports enabled us to visit various afterlife destinations, including the different levels of heaven, hell, and purgatory, and also returned to tell the tale. And we read some listener letters detailing their own near-death experiences. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Cracklin' Jane. Now, buckle down because we're headed to a 1950 episode of Dimension X, where we'll learn that Mars is heaven. So let's listen. Adventures in Time and Space, transcribed in future tense. Dimension X. When the first space rocket lands on Mars, what will we find? Will we be welcomed with open arms, or will the Martians treat us as invaders? Only one thing is certain. Someday a giant metal ship will take off from Earth to travel through the black velocities, the silent gulfs of space, to descend at last into the darkness of the upper Martian atmospheres. And on that day, man will finally know the answers. The day we first land on Mars. Now hear this. Now hear this. Approaching critical deceleration. Fasten gravity suits. Stand by to land. Mr. Lustig, what do you make of the terrain? There seems to be a heavy ground, Miss Captain. We won't be able to use our infrared lights. And we'll have to come in on radar. Isn't that a little risky, sir, landing in the dark? I'd rather run the danger of a blind landing, Lieutenant, than come in without the cover of darkness. Remember, we don't know what kind of reception is waiting for us down there. Airspeed 500. Altitude now 4,000. Bridge to engine room. Stand by for deceleration. Engine room. Aye. Fire forward tubes one and three. Aye. Skids down. Skids check. Altitude 500. Four. 350. Three. Up a point now. All right. Let's set her down. Look out! <laughs> Cut the power. Master's pipe battle stations. Aye, sir. All secured, sir. Well, we're on Mars. April 20th, 1987. 4.33, Greenwich time. Enter that in the log, Masters. Aye, sir. Well, gentlemen, it's less than two hours till dawn. As soon as it's light, we'll send out a landing party. Masters, get me an all-over hookup. All set, Captain. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, men. The smoking lamp is lit. We're 17 men on an alien world. And it's up to us whether we ever get home again. Next few hours should tell the story... And I want instant obedience to all commands. I'll court-martial the first man who doesn't jump to when he's ordered. And one other thing. We may be on Mars, but this is still a United States naval vessel. Officers will conduct a personal and weapons inspection in one hour. That's all. Inspection, Captain. Now? Mr. Lustig, 
We've got an hour and a half to sweat out before we find out what's outside that airlock. I'd rather have a man worried about his stripes, about what's waiting outside on Mars. Now hear this landing party report to forward airlock. Captain Black, Lieutenant Hingston, Lieutenant Lustig, and Dr. Horst report immediately to forward airlock. It is now landing time, minus five. Sounds like they're paging us, Hingston. You ready, Dr. Horst? Yes. Ready as I will ever be. Oh, come on. Let's report to the airlock. Four minutes to go. Where's the captain? Who knows? What difference does it make? Just want to get it over with, that's all. Has anybody uh, got a cigarette? I think you're smoking too much, Lieutenant Lustig. Are you nervous? Lay off, will you, Horst? Wondering what's hidden outside underneath that ground mist? Very unusual planet, Mars. Why? It has an atmosphere. Wonderful thing, an atmosphere. Where you find one, you find life. You mean Martians? What do you think they'll look like? Who knows? Intelligent life can take many forms. You mean they may have green skins and eyes on stalks or something? The comic book conception is possible. Or they may have developed to a point that is far beyond us. Perhaps they have a science that can produce weapons far more dangerous than our atomic missiles. You think we may have to fight our way out? After all, we are invaders. Now hear this landing time minus two. Landing all time. All right, minus all right, two. we heard this. I know what I'd like to find outside that airlock. Good old Illinois. <laughs> you ever been there, Lustig? Only Chicago. Well, you ought to see my hometown. Green lawns, big white houses. Sounds like my hometown. My grandmother used to have one of those iron deers on the lawn. Every Halloween, we'd paint it another color. One time, we painted it black and white like a Holstein cow. <laughs> Where does your family live, Horst? I have no family. When I was a child, they were gassed to death in the Dachau concentration camp. That's tough. Oh, it has its advantages. I have no ties on Earth. Nothing to lose now. I imagine I'm the only one on board who is free to enjoy our present peculiar position. All right, Lustig. You can button it up now. Aye, sir. Gentlemen, in one minute we'll be the first men to set foot on Mars. Quite an honor, eh? As long as the medals are not awarded posthumously. Still uneasy, Dr. Horst? Captain Black, I've been uneasy ever since I can remember. On Earth and on Mars. Now, oh, 30 seconds. Give me the intercom phone, Lusty. Masters? Aye, sir. Battle stations to be manned till we return. If we're not back in two hours, I want no rescue party sent out. Blast off and save the ship, you understand? Aye, sir. All right, gentlemen. Five seconds. Four. Three. Two. One. Lustig, open the outer airlock. Fresh air. Let's go. Hold it, man. It's too dark to move fast. Quiet, isn't it? 
Not even a wind. You can't see anything through this ground. Mess. Quiet. We don't know what's out here. Come on. What the... Quiet, Captain. I, I could swear that sounded like a rooster. I don't hear it anymore. A very unlikely sound. A rooster crowing on Mars? Kingston. Aye, sir. Set that machine gun 25 yards to the flank. We'll stay here till the ground mist lifts. Aye, aye, sir. What do you make of the ground, Horst? Grass. Plain grass. You can see some large foliage there where the mists thin down. What the heck is that? Kingston! Hold your fire, you fool! Some kind of wild animal. I hit it. I could see the tracers, but it's still standing. Come on, Hurst. Doctor. Doctor, where are you? Up ahead. Admiring the wild animal. Careful, Hurst. Wait for us. Don't worry, Captain. Huh. It's an iron deer. A lawn ornament. That's impossible. It's hollow. Interesting, isn't it? A whitewashed Victorian iron deer. Sitting on a lawn in the middle of Mars. I don't understand. Look around. The mist's lifting. The captain, look there. A house, a regular old-fashioned house. On Mars. Good Lord. I haven't seen carved scrolls and gingerbread like that in years. Look at that port swing. The geraniums. There. I told you it was a rooster, Captain. Give me the glasses, Lustig. I want to take a look through that front window. There's an upright piano. Some sheet music on it. Rustig, it's beautiful Ohio. Beautiful Ohio? That can't be. Look here, Horace. Do you think that civilizations of two planets could be identical? I don't know. That specific variety of geraniums is only 50 years old on Earth. Is it logical they should develop in Mars? How about that port swing and that, that piano and beautiful Ohio? No, it's impossible. Captain Black... This looks like the town I was born in. Well, it looks like my hometown, too. I've thought of something, sir. It's the only solution. Maybe we're not the first ship to reach Mars from Earth. That's the only answer. That's impossibleistic. There have been space travel that couldn't be secret. Do you have any idea what ships cost, what industrial power is needed? There's got to be some logical reason. Captain, I think perhaps we might find out. A light just went on in that house. Kingston, cover that door with a machine gun. Aye, aye, sir. Come on, horse. Ring that doorbell. There's got to be a scientific answer to all of this. There's something moving in there. Stand back, Horst. Give me a clear shot. Maybe a Martian. Can I help you? We. We, we were looking. Well, if you're selling anything, it's much too early. Uh, no, no. Wait, wait a minute. What, uh. What town is this? What do you mean? Are you census takers? No, we're strangers here. We want to know how this town got here. Is this a game? No, no, it's not a game. We're from Earth. From where? From Earth. Do you mean out of the ground? Hey, uh, are you sure you're feeling well? Madam, we came in a flying ship across space. We're from the third planet. This is this is Mars. Now, do you understand? Mars. You go away now, you hear? I'll call my husband from upstairs and he'll chase you now. But go on. This is Mars, isn't it? This is Green Lake, Wisconsin, in the United States of America. 
bounded on the east by the Atlantic and on the west by the Pacific. Now, 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 go away. Goodbye. Horace, do you suppose it's really possible that... I've got to find out more about this. For the last time now, go away. Pardon me, madam. What year is this? Year? Well, 1928, of course. Oh, for goodness sake. You hear that, Horst? And we know it's 1987. And we know it's Mars. Is it possible that we got fouled up, made some tremendous blunder and circled around and landed back on Earth? In 1928? Maybe some switch in time or, or dimension. Could we have shifted somehow and gone backward in time? Horst, it won't hold water. It's not logical. We've checked every mile. We went past the moon and out into space. We're on Mars. Find out anything, Captain? No, we're going back to the ship till I figure out some logical explanation for all this. Lustig, out at point. Aye, sir. Hingston in the rear. Keep that gun at half load. Aye, sir. Horst, there's got to be some cold, logical solution. Captain. Captain. What? That house down the street. The white one with the green shutters. Lustig, what's the matter? I never thought. I never thought. Thank God. Thank God. Lustig. Lustig, come back here. He's running for the house. That crazy fool after him quick. Lustig, stop. Come down off of that porch. Grandma. Grandpa. Lustig, what Grandma. the devil do you think you're crying? Grandma and Grandpa, it is you. Lustig, what's going on here? Albert, why, it's been so many years. How you've grown, boy. Oh, it's so good to see you. Lieutenant Lustig. Oh, oh, Captain. Uh, Grandma, I want you to meet my friend. This is Captain Black. Oh. Captain, I want you to meet my grandfolks. Howdy. <laughs> Any friends of Albert is friends of ours. How long <laughs> you been here, Grandma? Oh, good many years. Ever since we died. Ever since you what? Oh, yes, sir. They've been dead 30 years. What? You mean to tell me that Mars is heaven? Oh, nonsense, no. All we know is here we're alive again. And who are we to question God's infinite ways? I, Lustig, we're going back to the ship. But, Captain, I want to talk to my grandfather. Lieutenant Lustig, I don't like any part of this. You'll come back with us. I have to club you and carry you. Yeah, but, sir, there might... Heaven only knows what they've run up against back of the ship. crowd around the ship. Looks like we're being welcomed with a celebration. Celebration? They've abandoned ship. Every port is open. No guards yet. You! You, masters! Hiya, Captain. Meet my old dad. Dad, that's Captain Black, and he's not a bad guy for an officer. Of all the... Kingston! Uh, oh, oh, what, sir? Bring that man back. Use force if you have to. Uh, I... Oh, excuse me, sir. There's my Uncle George. Kingston! I'll be right back, Captain. Uncle George! Uncle George! What the devil Don't is going... Understand, sir. They've all found friends and relatives. They're all here. He's right, Captain. I've counted. The whole crew's out in the crowd. But I gave orders. Definite orders. You don't understand, Captain. I understand Holy... mutiny. I don't care how many relatives show up. I'll have discipline on... Johnny! Johnny, you old son of a gun. Edward. Edward. It's you. It can't be. <laughs> of course it is. Johnny, you old son of a gun. Ed. Edward. Dr. Horst. This is my, my brother, Edward. How do you do? Hello. It's... It's wonderful to see you, Edward. Look, I, 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 I've got to get back to my hey, ship. Hey, I almost forgot. Mom's waiting at home. Mom? And Dad, too. Mom? Dad are alive? 
Excuse me, Horst. Then you're real, then. <laughs> Don't I feel real? How's that, huh? <laughs> Ed. Ed. Right, we've, we've got lunch for you, Johnny. Mom's making corn fritters. Corn Dr. Horst, haven't you found anybody? Uh, no, Captain. I have nobody. Then you come on home with me, right, Ed? Sure, you bet. Horst, you wouldn't believe it, but it's been 35 years since I had Mom's corn fritters. By George. 35 years. And there's plenty more in the kitchen, so don't hold back, Johnny. You too, Dr. Horst. Well, Johnny, you're still in the Navy, huh? That's right, Dad. I'm in command of the ship. We're an old Navy family, Dr. Horst. All three of our boys in the service. Ed was the best pilot in the Pacific. What didn't happen, Ed? Oh, what's the difference? I'm here now. Oh, you know, it's almost perfect. All we're missing is your brother, Will. Then the whole family could be together. Well, it won't be long, Mom. Will's in charge of the XR-54. That's the next rocket coming out to Mars. Well, little Will. <laughs> when does he leave, Johnny? Takeoff's scheduled for September, but it depends on what we report. <laughs> There's no question about that now, eh? Christmas together again. That'll be something, huh? Yes, sir. Well, this calls for celebration. How about a little of the old dandelion wine, eh, Johnny? Now, Father, don't you go giving Johnny too much wine. Oh, he's a big boy now, Mother. Oh, well, sir, isn't everything just fine? Just fine. Well, Dr. Horace, what do you think of my little family, hmm? Very nice. You know, I can't understand why you didn't find any folks here, Dr. Horace. It's just a shame. Everybody else is so happy. I never remembered my family, Mrs. Black. All I know is they were gassed at Dachau during the Second World War. When I was liberated, I was in a delirium three months. I cannot remember anything before then. The psychiatric phenomenon. That's terrible. Isn't there anything anybody can do? I don't want to remember. Oh. I haven't had a pleasant life. I prefer to be free of emotional entanglements. They interfere with a scientific approach. I'm sorry, Dr. Horst. Oh, I'll get it. Hey, that's our ring, long and three shorts. Hello? I remember that. Well, maybe we'd better call it a night. You must be getting tired, Johnny. I'd better be going back to the ship. Oh, nonsense. You stay the night. We insist. Oh, I just couldn't rest thinking of you all alone on that ship. Oh, I'd be all right. Well, good night. Oh, wait a minute, Dr. Horst. That phone message was for you. Me? Yes, that's right. A message from Anna. Anna? I don't remember any Anna. She asked if you were better. Perhaps she's someone you knew at Dachau. Anna? She said she's coming over here first thing in the morning. So you'll have to stay over. Yes, Well, that but... settles it, then. You stay here, Horst. 
You can bunk with me in my old room. Oh, but Johnny, we thought you'd like to be with Edward. So you could talk the way you used to. Well, we can't put Dr. Horst on the day bed. I think we'd better share the room tonight. There'll be plenty of time for talking, Ed. I guess so. Well, I suppose I'd better drop back to the ship. You know, Ed, security check. Well, why do you have to do that here? Well, I don't know. There's no good reason, I guess. <laughs> well, I suppose we skip it tonight. Oh, Come sure. Uh, good night, everybody. <laughs> oh, it's good to have you home, Johnny. It's good to be home, Mom. <laughs> Captain Black, are you asleep? No, no. I've just been thinking about what we were expecting. <laughs> Green-skinned Martians with eyes on stalks. All the time there was only Mom and Dad and Edward waiting. Oh, it's funny what tricks your imagination can play on you. Yeah, I guess Mars is heaven, Horst. Hmm. I've been thinking about Martians, too. Yeah. <sighs> Captain... Just suppose, suppose there were Martians and they saw us land. Suppose they thought of us as invaders. What would be the best weapon they could use against our atom bombs? I don't see what you're getting at. They would want to disarm us first, hmm. to wipe out all suspicion, to make us feel at home. Hmm. But suppose this house isn't real. Suppose the people are just images. Stolen from our own memories by Martians. Created for us by telepathy, hypnotism. <laughs> that's the craziest theory I ever heard. Maybe that's why there was no one for me. Because in all my life, there is no happy memory. No real love person. How about that phone call from Anna? Yes. Anna. I don't remember who she was, but I do now. I just remembered. When I was freed from Dachau, sick, delirious, I raved about a wonderful, kind nurse named Anna that took care oh, of me. there you are. It's logical. She's coming to see you tomorrow. But there was no Anna. I'd be nursed by a man. What? Anna was only a dream. And there's only one way they could have learned about her. By reading my subconscious mind. But that's impossible, Horst. Why? The whole crew was thinking of home. Suppose the Martians read our minds. Yes, but if, if there are Martians... If there are... They have us separated. Each man in a different house. Sleeping. Trusting. No one at the guns. I left my pistol downstairs. Do you, do you think there's something to this, Horst? It's a... Who would suspect his own mother? His grandparents? How easy. Just a knife in the heart of each sleeping man. That's impossible, Horst. But we've, we've got to get back to the ship. Listen. The crickets have stopped. Come on. We don't know when they change back to them. Whatever they really are. Where are you going, John? Ed, well, we... We wanted to drink of water. That's all, Ed. You're not thirsty, John. You don't want to drink. You don't want Look out! to drink. His face, it's changing. And his hands, he's a Martian. Run, horse. Run. Away, John. You can't get away. This way, horse. Horse, where are you? Ah! 
hear me, Earth? This is Captain John Black, the XR-53, calling from Mars. I've locked myself in the ship, but they've crippled it. I, I can't take off or fire the guns, and they're coming for me now, the Martians. I'm all alone here. All the rest are dead. Hingston, Lustig, Dr. Horst. Poor Horst, he didn't even reach the door. <coughs> listen, listen, they're trying to break through the hull now. Edward and Mom and Dad and all the folks. But they're changing now, melting and changing back into... They're Martians. Can you understand me? Martians, not men. They made us think that Mars was heaven and we fell into the trap. Can you hear me, Earth? You've got to stop the next rocket. Tell, tell my brother Will. Tell my brother Will not to come. They'll trap him too. They'll kill them all. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me, Earth? This is John Black on Mars. Hello, Earth. This is John Black on Mars. Tonight, Dimension X has presented and transcribed the Ray Bradbury story, Mars is Heaven, adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured players were Wendell Holmes as Captain Black and Peter Capel as Dr. Horse. Your narrator, Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman, engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is produced by Van Woodward and directed by Edward King. Robert Warren speaking. In a moment, Dimension X. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We've just heard a 1950 episode of Dimension X, Mars is Heaven. Now stay tuned for a 1950 episode of X-1, Honeymoon in Hell, which we'll hear after this heavenly music.
You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. And according to Ben Burney and his orchestra, a 1936 star fell out of heaven. Now stay tuned for a 1950 episode of X-1, Honeymoon in Hell. Countdown for blast off. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. Far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight, the time is the late 1960s. The place, Washington, D.C. The story, Honeymoon in Hell. My name is Carmody. I'm a grade one cybernetics man at Western Alliance headquarters in the Pentagon. Used to be a rocket pilot, but they retired me at 27 after I made the third successful flight to the moon. As a grade one cybernetics operator, I get to work with Junior. Let me tell you about Junior. He was built in 1962, and he's the world's finest electronic brain, with a possible exception of Ivan, the Eastern Alliance brain, which was built on stolen plans and modeled after Junior. There are only four men in the country permitted in the same room with Junior because the data we feed him is so secret. One of those four is the president of the Western Alliance. The other three are myself, Charlie Mazur, and the chief. Ray? Oh, yes, chief. Have you got Junior running a problem? Well, I just fed him the hourly data for probability of H-bomb war with the Eastern Alliance. He's ready. Hold it. According to the data just received, the probability of a hot war between the Western and the Eastern Alliance is 99.5. 930 in favor of such a war breaking out within the next month. Oh, doesn't sound good, Chief. Yeah. Well, I'll scramble the data, send it to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Meanwhile, here's a priority C civilian problem to run off. Well, what's this stuff? Well, it seems on September 17th, a statistician in the birth record department of New York City noticed that out of 813 births reported that day, 657 had been girls and only 156 had been boys. Well, that sounds impossible. Well, that's what this statistician thought. So they phoned some other cities, and the same trend is being shown, not only in other American cities, but in Western Europe. Sunspots, maybe? That's for Junior to figure out. He's the brain here. Okay, I'll feed him. Give me the results on the intercom. I'll be in my office. Right. I didn't really pay much attention to the problem at the time. As a grade one operative, I was more interested in asking Junior questions on security, ballistics, missiles, rocketry, and so on. 
The Eastern Alliance would undoubtedly have traded three puppet governments and the tomb of Lenin to have an agent as a grade one operative. But I took the birth statistics and fed them in and waited. Uh, Junior, incidentally, responds to vocal stimuli. Speaks 12 languages. Got the answer, Junior? I have. Okay. The present statistics, if the trend is projected for another day, indicate a definite dangerous imbalance. If the trend is irreversible, unless new methods of reproduction are developed, the population of the United States and Western Europe will die out in one and one-half generations. Well, it wasn't long before the newspapers got the story and kicked it around. People in governments really started to worry now. Biologists and laboratories made it their number one project. On September 29th, only 41 boys were born in the entire United States. During the month of October, in spite of all the work going on, not a single male child was born anywhere in the world with the exception of one in outer Mongolia and one in Alaska. November drew another blank. I was working 18 hours a day feeding every available scrap of data to Junior. Data insufficient for answer to your question. Well, here's the latest. A new analysis of chromosome structure indicates the presence of an additional electron in the orbit of the Y atoms for carbon chain X. Now try again. The question is, what is causing the lack of male birth? Anything new, Ray? No, not yet. Hold it. Data insufficient. Well, that's it. We've fed Junior every scrap of information that every physicist, geneticist, chemist, and biologist in this half of the world knows, and all he does is say data insufficient. Yeah, well, the operator who had him last night didn't do any better. Uh, any more information on the Eastern Alliance? Have they made any progress? No, but at least the talk of a hot war is dying down. Well, they're still working on a space station, aren't they? Oh, yes, we're both going ahead with that. But, well, this seems to be a common problem now. You know, in spite of hydrogen bombs and ICBMs, people don't really expect the whole race to die out from a war. But the complete lack of male children... Now, that's something that every family can understand. Has anybody thought of the possibility of some kind of radiation from outer space that's damaging the chromosomes, something our instruments can't detect? Everybody's thought of it. Nobody's proved anything. Well, keep trying, Junior. Maybe he'll come up with something. Okay. Junior, I'm ashamed of you. Answer me. Information recorded. Look, you're a whiz on rocket fuels and space orbits, but when it comes to women, you're a total bust, just like me. I don't understand them and never will. Information recorded. Now, you've convinced us that if we use the H-bombs in total war, both sides will lose, and we know that your counterpart at Moscow University has given the same information to the Eastern Alliance. That you can figure out. But women, you can't have genetics without women, right? No. Well, you know that much. <laughs> what about that blonde at the party last night, huh? What about her? The question is inadequately worded. Please clarify. Did I see her again? No. What? You haven't even got any data on her. Why shouldn't I see her again? Answer, please. Because tomorrow you are going to be married. Well, I almost jumped out of my chair. Junior had gone stark raving mad. Besides, Junior never made predictions unless he had some definite data. There wasn't a woman on Earth I had the slightest interest in marrying. I was a confirmed bachelor. So, unless somebody else had been feeding phony data into Junior, which was almost impossible since he already had enough data to check any flaw, well, I figured he'd blown a transistor. Come in. 
Oh, Chief, I was just going to tell you... Oh, Ray Carmody? This is the president of the Western Alliance. Captain Carmody, Mr. President. Glad to meet you, Captain. Oh, I'm... I'm very honored, sir. The president came here specifically to talk to you, Ray. To me? Captain Carmody, you have been chosen to have the opportunity to volunteer for a mission of extreme importance. Now, there's much danger, but not as much as on your previous trip to the moon. Previous trip, sir? Then this involves another? The flight to the moon, Captain, will be the least important part of your mission. What's at stake here is the survival of the human race. Chief, perhaps you'd better explain the rest. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the problem, Ray. Last night when Mitchell was on, we fed Junior some new data, and we asked some new questions. For example, we asked if the lack of male birth could be due to some extraterrestrial enemies of man. Or Martians? Possibly. We established that it's possible that Martians have landed somewhere on Earth and set up radiation that causes all children to be females. Junior said it was possible? Definitely. So we asked him the next question. How could we correct such a situation? Mm-hmm. What did he say? Junior suggested that a married couple spend a honeymoon on the moon and uh, see if circumstances are different. Oh, I see. You want me to pilot them there? Well, uh, not exactly, Captain. Oh, good grief. You mean you want me to... Well, Junior wasn't crazy after all. You asked Junior? He said I was getting married, but... Well, how do you know it was me they'd pick? He was asked the qualifications for the bridegroom. He recommended a rocket pilot who had already made the trip successfully. Well, there are four other pilots who've made that trip. You're the only single one. And since the woman must be a qualified pilot also, and uh, none of the wives are pilots, well... Uh, I assume I'm going to be married before we leave. Naturally. Oh. And uh, just how long do we stay on the moon? Until a child is conceived. Brother. Well, Captain, do you volunteer? I suppose so. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Who's the other pilot? I mean, uh, the girl. She was flown in by fast rocket an hour ago and is waiting in Chief Reba's office. Shall we go? There were some officials there and a justice and my bride. She was small, dark, slender, and very attractive. I was so busy looking at the way she filled out her uniform in just the right places that I almost overlooked the fact that she was dressed like an Eastern Alliance pilot. Captain Ray Comedy, may I present Lieutenant Anya Borisovna? You mean this is... I mean, uh, an enemy pilot? Pleased to meet you, Captain. Uh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm pleased to meet you. Uh, Mr. President, I... Captain, this marriage is being done on an international basis for important diplomatic reasons. Both alliances have been advised by their cybernetic machine that the experiment, if it is to benefit humanity, must bring all the major powers together. Miss Borisovna is 24, an experienced rocket pilot like yourself, and uh, <clears throat> quite attractive, if I do say so myself. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Now, if you're both ready, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court will perform the ceremony. Well, there's just uh, one thing, Mr. President. Miss um, <clears throat> Borisovna, would you marry me? Yes. And uh, <clears throat> you may call me Anya. Okay. Uh, Mr. President, we're ready. I didn't even get a chance to kiss the bride. We were rushed over to the labs for a pre-flight physical. 
Then the chief took me aside for a private pre-flight briefing. Congratulations, Ray. Sit down. Uh, thank you. Now, zero hours at 10 o'clock. Only half an hour? We've known about this for several weeks now, Ray. Ship is ready. We've already fired 11 supply rockets and observed that they landed on the moon near where you're supposed to put down. One of them contains a heat-proof, airtight, collapsible shelter where you live. Uh-huh. Oh, what's the ship like? R-26, much better than the R-24 that you flew there. Last time, Ray, you took four and a half Gs for seven minutes. This time, you'll get by with three Gs and have 12 minutes to accelerate to Brenchless. Now, you'll have enough fuel for the trip there. One of the supply rockets has your return fuel. Oh, uh, oh yes. We put in a case of scotch and a uh, case of vodka here just as an icebreaker. Uh-huh. Uh, before we go, Chief, what would you have done if I'd turned this job down? The cybernetics machine predicted that you wouldn't. Besides, we could have had a hundred volunteers an hour after seeing Anya Borisovna. That gal is moonbeam. Uh, careful. You're speaking of my wife. Tower to R-26. Are you both strapped in? Anya, you strapped into the webbing? Yes. Okay, Chief. The time is X minus 15. I have a message from the president. Quote, the people of the world are watching. Don't fail them. I have messages from the Soviets, the Chinese, the British, the Indians, all wishing you well. You are the hope of mankind, and all mankind unites as it has never before united in giving you its blessings. We await your return anxiously. Unquote. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Blast off. The sound that was beyond all sound struck us like a giant muffled hammer. It built up until we weighed 480 pounds pressed flat against the webbing. Sound and pressure went on and on interminably. Then we reached Brenchless, free of the pull of earth. I blacked out. When I came to, a lovely face was bent over mine, two dark eyes smiling at me. Are you all right, Ray? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, are we weightless? Yes, yes. I shut off the fuel. We, we won't need it until we land. Oh, thanks. Uh, if you would teach me, I could help you land the ship. Oh, I've never been to the moon. Well, sure. Just uh, slide over here to the control panel. All right. <laughs> like this? Oh, that's fine. Mm. Uh, we've got about four hours Earth time to get acquainted. Uh, uh, <clears throat> have you uh, known many women? <laughs> A few. Have you uh, had any boyfriends? <clears throat> One or two. Hmm. Well, I was never really... Serious about anybody. Oh. <laughs> you uh, have a family? Yes. Uh, in Magnitogorsk. Oh. I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, how long have you been a rocket pilot? Oh, since I was 18. Uh, I'm 27. I'm 24. I learned rockets when I was 18 also. <laughs> oh. Well, uh, we better concentrate on the ship just now. Later on we can talk about ourselves more. Meanwhile, though, I uh, hope you're not sorry. I mean, about this business. I 
guess it isn't very romantic. I'm not sorry. We made a good landing. It didn't knock either of us unconscious. Then we got into our spacesuits and got out of the rocket. Some of the supply rockets were lying within a quarter mile. There were six eastern rockets and three westerns. About 800 yards away, though, there was a big supply rocket we couldn't identify. It looked different from the others, and neither of us could identify it as an eastern or western design we were familiar with. I pointed to it, and we headed there. You recognize that supply rocket? No, no, I, I was not briefed on anybody's standard still in the shade. Well, it must be something the chiefs of staff sent up as a surprise for us. I figured about uh, 50 feet long, but you can't see the rocket tubes. It, it might be a payload from a set rocket assembly. Uh-huh. Well, there's a door on the side, anyway, you see? The top of that ramp. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, maybe we ought to observe it a while before we go in. Oh, nonsense. Come on. Ray! Yes? Ray, I, I, I'm frightened. There's something wrong with you. Only one way to find out, Anya. Let's go. Well, there's some kind of lock on this door. Let's see if it opens. Well, that was easy. It's lighted inside. Mm -hmm. Come on. Maybe they sent us a surprise cottage for the honeymoon. Special delivery to the moon. This doesn't look like anything designed for humans to live in. The door's closed behind us. Try the lock. No, it's no use. Here, let me try. Oh, holy smoke, I can't get oh. it open. Do you have a gun? No, no, I have no weapons. They would be useless anyway. Hey. Oh, look. Good grief. They look like blobs of flesh with arms and legs. About, about three feet. Oh. Don't make any sudden moves. That's some kind of weapon he's carrying. Precisely, Captain Carmody. Who are you? How do you know my name? My people and I are inhabitants of another galaxy. Extraterrestrial. Precisely. As for how we know your name and your language, we have been studying you since you first achieved space travel. We have intercepted your radio communications, for example. Uh, have you been responsible for the lack of male birth? We have been beaming an ultrasonic wave toward your planet. Uh, what are you planning to do? For the moment, we will keep you aboard our ship and steady you. You may remove your helmets, incidentally. We have provided an oxygen atmosphere. Can, can, can we risk it? Well, if he wants to kill us, there are easier ways. Here, help me get it off. <laughs> well, it breathes pretty good. Keep your helmet with you. You may make yourselves comfortable. We will bring you food and liquid from your supply rockets. Uh, do not attempt to escape, please. It could be most unpleasant. The next few days were like a nightmare. The blobs left us to ourselves except to feed us. Of course, it had its funny side, too. The creatures knew we needed liquid, but they couldn't distinguish between water and whiskey. For the first two days, we had nothing but whiskey to drink. For obvious reasons, I don't remember much about it, but uh, we did begin to sing to each other. We also got to know and like each other. I got to learn some Eastern songs. On the third day, the jugs were water jugs, and uh, we sobered up. Oh, 
What a hangover. <laughs> you were singing magnificently. Oh, well, you weren't so bad yourself. How long was I asleep? Oh, about eight hours. Ray, while you were passed out, I discovered how we can escape. What? I've been studying the blobs. They seem to have a five-hour sleep period when there is no sound in the ship. I've tried banging on the wall with my helmet during that period, but apparently they're almost completely unconscious during our... Mm-hmm. Five-hour sleep. That means a planet with approximately a 20-hour rotation. The Joint Chiefs will want to know that if we get back. And more important, we are much stronger physically than they are. I can actually bend the metal of the door lock. Well, now, what are we waiting for? Let's put on our helmets and get out of here. Are they in the sleep period? Yes, for about three hours. Ray, do you think we can risk it? We don't have much choice. I'll go ahead. If we get out of this ship, you run for our rocket and start to refuel. I'll keep an eye on the blobs. All right. All right, but Ray, please be careful. Don't worry. Uh, Before you put on your space helmet... Uh, you realize I've never even kissed the bride? Yes. Oh, Ray. Good luck, Mrs. Carmody. By the time I reached the ship, Anya had the rockets refueled. I jacked up the tail fins and we headed for space. When I checked our screen to see if the blobs were after us, we detected their ship heading toward the outer galaxies away from Earth. The rest was easy. In less than 24 hours, I was in the office of the president of the Western Alliance making a full report. The Eastern Ambassador was there, along with the chief. Captain, this story is incredible. I'll be glad to submit to a lie detector, Mr. President. There's one on its way. Our embassy is questioning Miss Borisovna right now to see if her story is similar. Are you positive they were extraterrestrials? I mean, couldn't they have been, well, Easterners? If Easterners are three feet tall without bones and look like little green blobs of protoplasm. Yes. It's for you, Ambassador Carter. Thank you. Yes. 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 Our woman tells the same story under scopolamine. It must be the truth. Obviously, they went back for reinforcements or further orders. If and when they get back, we've got to be ready for them. My government stands ready to cooperate fully. Excellent. We'll have to build a joint space station, get to the moon and fortify it jointly. If we pool all scientific knowledge, military data, we may be able to do it. Our propaganda ministry has already received orders to put everything into reverse gear. Comedy, I don't know how the world can ever thank you and Miss Borisovna. You not only averted a suicidal war between the East and West, you've also managed to draw us together in a joint effort where international power politics must be a thing of the past. Well, sir, uh, I have a request to make. Anything, my boy. By the way, your wife is on her way over. Uh, I'd like to get back to Junior to ask him a personal question before I see her again, if you don't mind. Well, it's rather odd, but I suppose if it's what you wish. Chief, would you let Captain Carmody operate the cybernetics machine alone for a few moments? Right this way, Ray, boy. I waited until I was alone with a big cybernetics machine. One green dial glowed malevolently as if the instrument was aware of my presence. I opened the input channel and spoke. Hello, Junior. This is your old friend, Ray. Give an appropriate answer. Hello, Ray. Now then, you remember Miss Borisovna, 
the girl who was selected for me to marry. Item one, she's going to rejoin me in a short while. Item two, I've fallen in love with her. Item three, before we actually live together as man and wife, I want to know something. Question. Does she love me? Yes. Oh, oh, that's my boy. Now then, just one more item before I say so long and take a honeymoon. Tell me, Junior, why do I have a hunch that those blobs from outer space will never be back? Answer, please. Because what you call a hunch comes from your own unconscious mind. Your unconscious mind knows that the extraterrestrials do not, and never did, exist. What? Do you wish the answer repeated? I wish you to tell me why I saw them, why Anya saw them. Neither of you saw them. Amplify that answer, Junior, or I'll smash every tube in your memory bank. Since I am an AC-7 cybernetics machine, I have no circuit reactor for threats of destruction of my tubes. The answer to your question is as follows. The memory of extraterrestrials is due to post-hypnotic suggestion. You mean I was hypnotized to find those blobs on the moon? Correct. And just who hypnotized me? I did. I hypnotized you. Oh. And Anya? A similar AC-7 cybernetics machine located at the University of Moscow. Would you explain why? Cybernetics machines are constructed to help humanity. A major war, the disastrous results of which I could accurately calculate, was inevitable unless forestalled. Calculation showed that the best way to avert that war was the creation of a common mythical enemy. Therefore, I created a situation which led to your mission to the moon. Well, well wait a minute. You created the situation? Yes. Well, tell me how you did it. How did you prevent male babies from being conceived? A special modification of radio carrier wave for station JVT here in Washington, D.C. The only 24-hour-a-day radio station in the United States. The modification is not detectable by any instrument known to man at present. Well, how could you do that? You can't leave here. One year ago, you yourself fed me a problem. The design of a new cathode tube for radio station JVT. I modified the tube to send out a wave that would prevent male children from being conceived. So all we have to do is eliminate that tube. It will not be necessary. The tube was designed to burn out exactly 15 minutes ago. And the same thing happened in the Eastern Alliance? Precisely. Two properly constructed machines will always arrive at the same answer to the same problem. Oh, Junior, I gotta hand it to you. But why let me in on it? It is to the interests of humanity to know the truth. It is to your own interests. And you will tell no one because of the type of individual you are. Mankind will work together now to reach the stars. Uh, one last question, Junior. If Anya and I were just hypnotized to think all of that was happening up on the moon, what really did happen up there? I waited a while, but Junior was silent. It's the first time he ever pulled anything like that. However, I'll swear that I saw that green eye of his wink at me. You 
You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features Butterfly Nine by Donald Keith. The story of Jeff, who needed a job, and a man with a job to offer. One where giant economy-sized trouble had labels like fake make, bumsy, and peakage. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Honeymoon in Hell, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by Frederick Brown and adapted for radio by George Leffert. Featured in the cast were William Redfield, Bill McCure, Wendell Holmes, Charles Penman, Leon Janney, Roger DeCoven, and Jack Grimes. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. You're listening to WSHDLP Eastport. That was Honeymoon in Hell, a 1950 episode of X-1. Thank you, dear friends. This concludes today's show. On behalf of around the world's staff of researchers, recording engineers, interns, and Victrola technicians, this is Cracklin' Jane. Thank you, and see you next week. Joan Loudon, a.k.a. The Bass Lady, inviting you to join me every Wednesday from 3 to 4.30 p.m. for The Bass Lady Presents, with a different weekly theme from jazz to Celtic, from Newgrass to New Orleans, it's always a mix of great music. That's every Wednesday from 3 to 4.30, with a repeat airing on Saturdays from 4 to 5.30 p.m., right here on 93.3 FM, W-S-H-D-L-P Eastport, Maine I'm all about that bass Hey, have I got a radio show for you Old Coasting comes at you twice a week Thursday at 8, Sunday at 4 Right here on W-S-H-D-L-P in Eastport, Maine 93.3 FM On Bold Coasting, we don't just play the music uh, We like to talk about it a little bit, too It's music and commentary. It's a radio show with liner notes. Your kids can ask your parents what that means. Mad Pad. Mad Pad. Tune in every Saturday night at 7 and again on Tuesdays at 8 for Philly Joe Remarkable's Mad Pad right here on WSHDLP Eastport, Maine, 93.3 on your FM dial. Man, take this crazy pad. Man, it's a mad pad.
are listening to WSHDLP Eastport, broadcasting from the hallowed hallways of Shed High School. Tune in Mondays 4 to 6 p.m. for Around the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane, featuring historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world, plus radio dramas from the golden age of radio. If you miss the show, don't despair. There's a repeat broadcast on Fridays, 6 to 8 p.m., and if you miss that, just go to www.cracklinjane.com and download or stream the show at your leisure. Come on by Sam's Caffeine Cafe every Tuesday and Thursday morning from 8 until 10 a.m. I'm Sam, the proprietor. I keep all the tables clean. There are no sesame seeds on the floor, no schmutz from the night before, just good music. The first hour, a little bit softer, some Americana, folk, blues, a little bit of jazz. But by 9 o'clock, we are amped up on caffeine. We're playing up-tempo music all hour long. It's a grab bag. It's a fun place to hang out, and we would love to have you. We would. Please come by 93.3 WSHDLP Eastport. Hi, this is Craig Williams. I've been collecting music first on 45s, then LPs, cassettes, CDs, and digital files for over 40 years. From the obscure to the sublime and the familiar to the mundane, it's pretty much all pop music of just about any era or genre. And I call sharing it with you unabashedly playing favorites. Please tune in every Friday from 1 to 2 p.m. right here on WSHD LP Eastport 93.3 FM. 